This sermon series that I'm starting, and I was trying to figure out how many times have I used these, these series of messages. I know that uh, I used them in my first assignment in Plattsburgh, New York, then I used them in Egypt before I was transferred to Saudi Arabia. I also used them in Iraq and in Afghanistan and in some other churches and places like that. One of the things that happened when I was getting ready to be moved from Egypt to Saudi Arabia because they had decided that I could go basically be the last chaplain out on the last plane with the commander. And um, as I was getting ready to leave and had my last service, I had a young airman come up to me and he says, you know, I became a Christian through your preaching with the I am's of John. Because I got to really know who Jesus Christ was. And so, part of the heart of these messages, as I'll explain, is that they are evangelistic. They are encouraging people. But for Christians, people who have been converted, I hope also to enrich your love for Jesus Christ as you listen to him, as well as think about how you present Jesus to your friends, your neighbors, to strangers, people who don't know them. Now, conversion, that idea of changing commitments, is something that, that you know, advertisers want you to change. They want you to move from one car company to another car company. Um, I have a nine-year-old... No. Is Seth nine? Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a naive, and he, he has loved baseball his whole life. But he experienced something for the first time. His favorite player from Miami got traded to the New York Yankees. And so he was faced in his young existential life do I stay with the team or I go with my hero? He went with his hero, so now he wears a Yankees hat instead of a <laughs> Miami hat. But we know that religious conversion in some countries is illegal. I have friends who work in Muslim countries where they have exit strategies. I remember when I was young, back in the, the mid-50s, and we supported a missionary who went to Afghanistan. He was the first English-speaking missionary to go to Afghanistan after World War II. When it was still, and this was what I remember, it was still legal to kill Christians in Afghanistan if somebody converted. Now, when I went to Afghanistan, that church that he helped start was still going. And they had, and this is what amazes me, they had services in 22 different languages. Because Christianity among the expat community, in other words, the non-Afghan community, was just growing. Now, we also know, and when we look at this, this passage in John, is that when you make a commitment of faith, you also are joining a community, people who share that faith. So sometimes it's hard um, for people to understand when people make choices that are different than the family they've come from. 
And so when we look at these passages and we listen to John tell us about Jesus, I want to start with what I call the bookends of the book of John, because when I begin a series, I want you to understand kind of the context that we're, we're looking at. Now, John says that the, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but the will of God. See, at the very beginning of John's Gospel, he's talking about people who change, people who believe in Jesus, people who do that because of the will of God. And that becomes one of the I won't say complex, but it becomes one of the things that we'll see in, in the book of John and the relationship between what we do and what God does. Because Jesus is very clear that he's come here to do the will of the Father who sent him. Now, going to the other end of John, in John 20. Now, Jesus did many other things, he says in verse 30, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But... These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what the good news is, having life in his name. But John is saying, I've written my book. I've written my collection of stories. And we're going to find out What's happening today, when we think about the first of the seven I am's, it's the bread of life, the light of the world, I am the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection and life, the way, the truth, and the life, and the vine. That's where we're going. He uses this I am to draw their memory back to the burning bush. Because who... Did God say to go tell the people to tell the slaves? He says, go tell them that I am have sent you. He is claiming this mantle. Now, part of the context is when you look at it, it, John 6 is that you've got this boy that brings a lunch, you know, five, you know, I don't, I don't have any barley bread up here. I guess I should have got some barley bread. Barley bread is, is very important in the Jewish world because barley was the, the feast of Passover. And what happened with barley was that you could get, you had to get rid of all the yeast. But barley is one of the easiest um, grains, get that right, to ferment and turn into yeast. So it has kind of the quickest turnaround time to get rid of all and then you can make it again. And of course, when I was here in December, I learned about another use that Scottish people use for barley. <laughs> John 6 is at the end of his second year of ministry. 
John the Baptist has just been executed. He has about one year to his own death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. And so when you think about the seven I am's in that last year, Jesus and then John and recording them is getting them ready for Christ to go on the cross. And so as we think about this compact period of time, this last year of Jesus getting his disciples and getting the public ready, he begins to use these I am's. And when he says that he is the bread of life, we need to think about life because life is used in three of the I am's, but it's also woven throughout John's gospel because he tells us at the beginning, in him was life and that life was the light of men. Life and light. See, one of the things is getting and taking the word of God seriously. Now, that life was the light of men. Light is next week from chapter 8. But Jesus says here that I am the bread of life, and that is said again and again. I am the bread of life come down from heaven. You remember from the text, and we'll look at this later on, but that idea that he's saying, I have come down from heaven, that he is identifying and beginning to get his disciples and the public and us through the text ready to understand his mission and why he is here. He says, he who comes to me will never go hungry and believes in me will never be thirsty. He's describing eternal life. Now, the bread of life, I think, is kind of a a hook to translate between the feeding of the 5,000. Because what were their people's response to the feeding of the 5,000? They said, hey, can we do this every day? Can we get free bread? Can I have a free lunch? And Jesus says, "You're you're not getting the point. It's not just about physical food. It's not about the bread like I've got laid out up here. It's about me. Now, as we got some response from the young people, we have to say that sometimes in explaining Christianity to people and what Jesus is saying, he's speaking in a language that is, can be confusing and sometimes seems gross um, to young people, or to anybody, I guess, in describing himself. Now, we know that all this language of food and blood, bread and blood, is going to lead us to the Lord's Supper. It's going to lead us to the transition from the Passover, where they put blood over their door and they ate special bread and they ate a lamb. Because eating was a great part of the Jewish life religiously because God had given them meals to remind them of his grace, of his mercy, of his power. And in verse 39, he talks about raising them up on the last day. (laughs) 
Now, he says, this bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. See, in the bread illustration, he sees himself as a substitute. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. All of this reference to his flesh is getting them ready for his crucifixion. When he gives his body as a substitute for his people's sins. But he reminds them that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. I tell you the truth, that he who believes has everlasting life. This text and Jesus' words remind us again and introduce us to faith. That we need to have faith in the one who says, I am the bread of life, who says that he is going to sacrifice his life for the world, that he's come down to do this. But it tells us in verse 38 that I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. One of the things in explaining Jesus Christ to people, depending upon how much they know about him, because in today's world, I never know when I would meet a, an airman or a, or a soldier or somebody from the Marines. or yeah. I would never know how much they knew about Jesus Christ. So you have to listen to them because the language of the Bible is the language of faith that I can't assume that people know. And so helping them to understand it, that Jesus... And this is what this sermon series is all about is making sure that the Jesus somebody believes in is the Jesus who revealed himself to us. Not a Jesus I make up. Not a Jesus that makes me feel comfortable. But as I listen to the words of Jesus, that I've come down from heaven to do the will, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That he was sent. Now, hearing that word sent should remind us of God's grace. He did not leave us. He sent his one and only son to be the bed of life, to be the light of the world, to be the resurrection, to be all of these things. Now, one of the things that he does in this is he begins to weave in into the narrative about who he is, his father. Verse 37 says, all that the father gives me will come to me. Do you see that as God's grace? That the Father brings people to Jesus. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. So that's part of what the Gospel of John is all about, is so people can have eternal life. So they can have that relationship that can't be broken. That death cannot separate us from them. That we will have eternal life. Now, that idea of eternal life was one that was very practical as a military chaplain in combat zones. 
when I was in Afghanistan, um, we would be in what we euphemistically called firefights. They're shooting at us, we're shooting at them, they're lobbing mortars, we're lobbing mortars, we're calling for airplanes. But nobody took life for granted. So the idea of eternal life was something that you could talk about and say, how do you get there? And Jesus says you get there through him. Now, verse 45 is very important. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Again, this is the idea of how do we know about Jesus? We need to be willing to learn by listening to Scripture, by listening to the Father. We can't create a Jesus in our own image. Now, I didn't see them yesterday, but one of the things you see sometimes when you go to bakery shops is you'll see like gingerbread men or gingerbread families. You know, you, can, you kind of make up your own little design. We can't do that with Jesus. Because Jesus is real. We need to be willing to listen to the Father, the text tells us. Everyone who listens to the Father. Scripture is how we know what we know. And so when we are introducing people to Jesus, we're going to be introducing them to Scripture. And depending upon the background of the individual, maybe they came from a family where Scripture was never discussed, where they were never exposed to it. Maybe their parents, you know, it's, it's third and fourth generation of no Bible in the home. And so you have a lot of listening to help them to learn who Jesus is. Now, one of the things that I will say is that everybody that you're going to talk to about Jesus is going to be different. Some people may come to faith very quickly with very little knowledge, and then you disciple them and help them to grow. I mean, there is this emptiness in their lives that all of a sudden, when you explain to them that Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, I'm here for you, I've substituted as a sacrifice for you. And somebody says, that's what I need. And other people, you're going to go through all seven. You're going to, you know, study Galatians with them or something. You know, you're going to have all this studying before they make that decision. Because different people come to Christ in different ways. I went through kind of a crisis when I was in high school because... I was an identified Christian who shared my faith in my 1967 Southern California, you know, hippie, sex, drugs, and rock and roll high school. But it also meant I attracted a whole bunch of Baptists who were my friends. But they would say, why don't you know when you were born again? You have to know. You've got to know. If you don't know, how do you know? Now, it wasn't until I got to Covenant College that I found out my answer. That as a Covenant child, God had worked in me. And I could look back at particular milestones. 
My father says I prayed a prayer when I was three. I remember in my own mind understanding the cross at age seven. There were things when I was 15, other things that happened in my life that were what I call milestones of faith. But yet for children who grow up with family devotions, Sunday school, church, catechism, those kinds of things, faith comes in a, in a, a way that just changes their lives and they know at that age appropriateness. Now, those of you who are involved in education know that children at different stages of life understand things differently. And you build on what they know. And so when we think about getting people early on, when they, we want them to know about Christ, to know that they need to listen to the Father, they need to listen to Scripture, that that's where the information, that's where the knowledge of Christ is. All of this can be summed up in some things that Francis Schaeffer I remember him talking about that God created us to be able to both listen and to speak. When you see in the early chapters of Genesis a conversation between God and Adam and Eve, they were created to listen and to speak. We believe that the triune God is there and he is not silent. I've often thought that it would have been a, 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 a cosmic joke for God to create Adam and Eve and the world and all that, put them there and not explain it to them. I mean, you just wake up and you look around. You, you know who wrote about that? And I won't get into it, but one of them, an American author named Mark Twain has an amazing story about Adam and Eve. And, you know, it leaves out the revelation. So somebody's already tried that. Now, we get on to the last point. You and I and Jesus faced opposition. Verse 36, but you said that you have seen me yet do not believe. See, that's one of the things that Jesus wanted his disciples to know and the crowd to know is that you could be in the presence of Christ. You could hear him speaking. You could see him do miracles. You could see him raised from the dead. But yet they didn't believe him. Now, the other thing that got him in trouble with his generation, and we would probably, in our generation, people would have trouble. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. That idea of he came from heaven, that he was eternal and came into our history, into our lives. That is a, a big step because some people, all they believe that exists are what, you know, mass and energy, what you can see, feel, and touch, what you can measure. Rather than believing that there is a God who is there, who has created everything, sent his son, so that we might become the children of God. And so this issue of I have come down from heaven, because that becomes an issue in his trial, because they saw that as a claim for divinity. 
that Jesus was divine. Now, as we move through these, and you, you look at a, a passage like this, not all of them are going to be as, as long as this, but you, you look at them and hopefully they will deepen your love for Christ because he explains who he is. Because he wants us to understand. All the time knowing that with each I am, we are moving closer to the cross. And his death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, I think this last part, in thinking about talking to non-Christians, people who have doubts or do not believe, I'm not sure whether the idea of Christ coming from heaven or that God can communicate which one of those two is the bigger stumbling point for many modern people. Maybe you have people in your extended family who have doubts or raise questions. And oftentimes they'll be around these two questions. Is God there? And can he communicate? And when you think about Jesus saying that I am the bread of life, remember he says, listen to the Father, and then have faith, believe in me, and have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we look at this scripture, as we study it together, as we listen to Jesus tell us who he is, that it would deepen our faith. If there are people who have questions, we pray that they might ask them. Father, we thank you that you give us an opportunity to share who you are so that people can change and believe and have eternal life. We pray these things, Jesus, in your most holy name. Amen.